as we come together to the close of this conference, I just think about all that we have seen in God's word, thought about together as God's people, the importance of church planting in a hurting world, obeying God's commands as God's people in the time and place in which he has put us, specifically his command, the center of the Great Commission to make disciples of the nations, the challenges of the Great Commission, but the accomplishable nature of the Great Commission. And so now we come to the price paid by those who went before us why suffering is inseparable from the Great Commission. I trust a sober reminder to us that what we've been talking about is costly and will involve suffering in our lives. I think about uh, my life as a pastor. I think about one of my mentors as a pastor in ministry, who I first heard about this pastor years before I ever met him. And he was known for mobilizing people from their church, from the church he pastored to go all over the world. Small, relatively small town. Yet he was mobilizing all kinds of brothers and sisters. So I started meeting these different people who had come from that church and were going with zeal after the nations. Then years later, got to know this pastor. And as I got to know him, learned from him, I remember one day asking him, hey, how are things going? This is like year 30 for him of pastoring at this point. And he said to me, David, this has been the hardest year yet. He started talking about resistance to mission in the church, just all kinds of challenges in this way, that way. And as, as he shared this with me, I was so discouraged. Like I, I thought, man, 30 years in one church and you're facing the hardest year yet. And I guess it exposed in me this idea that maybe 30 years from now, having walked with the church through year after year after year in God's Word and the Great Commission, that, that maybe it'll get easier. But I, I was just in a sobering way reminded in that moment that as long as we are pressing forward in shepherding the church and giving our lives to make disciples of all the nations, it will never be easy in this world. There is an adversary, there are spiritual forces of evil in the world who are working every single moment to keep disciples from being made among the nations, to keep the church from obeying Christ's call to go to the nations. And when we go, there is an adversary, there are spiritual forces of evil who for generations and centuries has blinded the minds of unbelievers, has kept them from hearing the gospel. And so this is a battle. 
Spiritual warfare is real. And it is costly. And what I want us to see in God's word is that it is costly, that it involves suffering under God's sovereign design. So we're not going to be in one particular text. We're going to be just all over scripture in different ways. But here is the one sentence that I want to put before us in this session and unpack in all the scripture and leading into church history. As we think about the price paid those who went before us. So here's the sentence. If you want to write it down, the accomplishment, so that term has been used, the accomplishment of the Great Commission will include great suffering. But eternity will prove it was worth the price. So let me say that again. The accomplishment of the Great Commission will include great suffering. As I say that, I realize I don't fully realize the magnitude of what that means. But eternity will prove it was worth the price. And as I say that, I realize I don't know the full magnitude of what that means. So let's, let's see this truth all over Scripture. I'll split it into those two parts. The accomplishment of the Great Commission will include great suffering. Jesus told us this. I just think about Matthew 10 as he commissioned his disciples to go out on short-term mission. Listen to where he told them to go. Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So this is obviously a unique time and place, a unique assignment. And proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Did you hear that? Like, go to the diseased, go to the dying, go to the despised lepers, go to the dirty, those filled with demons. Go to great need. The impulse of followers of Jesus is to great need. You keep going in Matthew 10, verse 16. It's not just great need, it's great danger. Behold, I am sending you out, Jesus says, as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Think about this language. This is the good shepherd, the great shepherd, Jesus. So what's the responsibility of a shepherd? The responsibility of a shepherd is to protect sheep from wolves, right? To keep wolves from coming in among the sheep. That's what shepherds guard against. So here's Jesus, the good, great shepherd, telling his disciples, his sheep, go hang out with wolves. You think about this, like sheep are some of the most helpless, foolish of all domesticated animals. Harmless noises can send sheep into a frenzy. When they face danger, they have nothing. All they can do is run, and they're slow. So the dumbest thing a sheep can do is go wandering into a pack of wolves. And Jesus says to his followers, you do that. 
Jesus is saying to them, by implication to us, you will go by my commission into dangerous places. You will find yourselves among evil, rapacious, vicious people. And I will have you there by my design. (laughs) That's so different from the way we think. The way we have led people to think in churches and our culture. Like we think, people in our churches think, if it's not safe, it must not be God. If it's dangerous, if it's risky, if it may cost me or harm me, it must not be God. What if that may actually be the, the criteria by which we determine it is God? Go, Jesus says, to danger. Let it be said of you, or it be said of sheep wandering in the middle of wolves. They're crazy. Jesus says, that's what it means to be my disciple. And he says, be smart as snakes as you go. So go without reservation, without hesitation into danger. And when you're there, be smart and be pure as doves. When you're with the wolves, don't let them have anything against you when it comes to your purity. And be innocent in the middle of it all. Show them what purity looks like in action. So is is this where we are going? Is this where we're calling church members to go? To great need, to great danger. Are we telling them what Jesus told them will happen to them when they get there? Including, remember what he says here in Matthew 10, how he will give them words. He will help them when they get there. I was thinking about a conversation with a woman I was having who had just been arrested in a country in Asia. This is a short, shy, soft-spoken Asian sister in Christ who had moved to this unreached part of the world to share the gospel. And she'd been, she'd seen fruit. She set up a particular platform for work, had led people to Christ. They had started gathering together as a church. She did not know that government officials were watching her until one day she was called to her workplace by her boss. The police were waiting there. And I was writing down notes as I listened to her story. They started asking her questions. They went to her house with her, searched everything she had, threatened to throw her in prison if she didn't give them all the information they wanted. But she wasn't budging, so they threatened her again, then left her that night to think about it. That night she prayed. She said, based on Matthew 10, like, Lord, you promised to give me what to say in situations like this. She prayed, I'm trusting you to keep that promise. So this, the next morning, she's called back to her work. The police are waiting for her again. She gets there, she walks up, and she says, it's good to see you guys. Where are we going today? This is, I'm writing down, and she's recounting the story. They take her to the police station. They start accusing her of being a spy. She insists she's not. She says, but I do have something to say. So they stop, and she says, I want you to know how thankful I am for you. And they kind of look at each other, and she says, you must love your country so much because you're working so hard to protect it, and it is an honor for me to meet you. They didn't know how to respond. She turned to one of the police officers who was a woman, and she said, you must be the most beautiful police officer in the entire country. And the woman said, thank you. So finally they said, do you realize what's happening here? Like, we know you're sharing about Jesus and starting churches. We could put you in prison. And she said, I wrote down her response. She said, I will gladly go to prison to prove to you that Jesus loves the people in your country. They look at her and she says, I will gladly die if that will prove to you how much Jesus loves the people in your country. She told me one of the police officers started tearing up. Eventually they let 
or go. Like Jesus leads us into great need and great danger, and Jesus is with us in great need and great danger. And he tells us, he tells us, keep going to Matthew 10, verse 21, you'll be betrayed there. Verse 22, you'll be hated there. You will be persecuted. Not if they persecute you, when they persecute you. Chapter 10, Matthew, verse 23 through 25. So do we realize, we put all this together, the reality we must face is that the danger of our lives increases in proportion to the depth of our obedience to Jesus. Like that is an unavoidable conclusion from what you read in Matthew 10. I hear this loud and clear to everyone who wants a safe, carefree life away from danger, stay away from Jesus. That's the whole point. Because this is how the world responds to Jesus. That's what Jesus goes on to say there in chapter 10. So when Jesus becomes more and more our life, then the world will respond to us more and more the way they responded to him. So how do you avoid being betrayed, hated, or persecuted? You don't become like Jesus. That's, this is one of the reasons why I believe we're so prone to sit back and settle for like religious routine and comfortable, casual, cultural Christianity because it's safe and the world likes us over there. As long as we live just like everybody else in the world and go to church on Sunday, keep our faith to ourselves, we will not face risk in the world. And the only problem is we won't be like Jesus. But when we're like him, when we know him, we're following him, becoming more and more in his image and proclaiming him, then things will not be easy for us. The more Christ is manifest in our lives and our families and our churches, the harder it will be in this world. Like, are we, are we shepherding the church to see this? Are we sending out brothers and sisters, telling them they will be betrayed, hated, and persecuted. And then listen to what Jesus says next there in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. It says, don't be afraid, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Oh, what a, what a picture. He says it over and over again. Do not fear. Speak with holy boldness. boldness, And, and don't be afraid. Jesus says, man is not who you need to be afraid of. You need to be afraid of God. He's your ultimate judge. He's the one who holds your eternity in his hand. Men don't hold your eternity in, his, in their hands. God does. When you sit back, like, this is a weird way to encourage disciples. Jesus is literally saying, don't be afraid of men. The worst thing they can do is kill you. Huh. People think, well, if I go to this place in, this, in the world, I could be killed. And Jesus says, that's all? Don't be afraid. All they can do is kill you. Is that comforting to you? Here's, here's the deal. The only way that is comforting to you is if your life has already died with Christ and you're so focused on eternity that nothing man can do to you even matters. It was said of saints of old that they feared men so little because they feared God so much. Jesus 
says, fear will tempt you, but the Father will take care of you. Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them that will fall to the ground apart from your Father. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. Like the one who calls you to the wolves loves you. So don't fear. Confess him publicly. Verse 32, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Love him supremely. You look at chapter 10, verses 34 to 37. Anyone who loves his father or mother or wife or children more than me is not worthy of me. And he closes it out in verse 38. Take the ultimate risk. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Take the ultimate risk. Find the ultimate reward. Jesus is calling us to a reward here, to a life here that is better than anything this world offers. Big picture point, Matthew chapter 10. It is clear. Jesus promised suffering and obedience to his commission. And as a result, we're not surprised when we turn the pages into the book of Acts in our Bibles to see the church experiencing suffering over and over and over again. People being stoned, beheaded, going through many tribulations. Acts 14, 22. Remember this? Like this is the founding first churches and this first missionary journey sent out from Antioch. They strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraged them to continue in the faith, and said through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. I I read that and I think, is that how I'm discipling people? Like from the very beginning, am I telling people, are we telling people in our churches, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God? Are we telling believers, preparing followers of Jesus to suffer like this? Are we telling them that God has actually ordained suffering as a means for the accomplishment of his purposes. He's ordained it. That's not a surprise to anyone who believes the gospel. We know God has ordained the suffering of his one and only son for the accomplishment of his purposes. The salvation of the nations is accomplished through the suffering of the Son. Now, obviously, we don't suffer in the same way that Jesus suffered for the sins of men and women. But now we start to put it together. Like, how will we proclaim this Savior to the world How will we, in a Colossians 1 kind of way, fill up what is lacking in his afflictions? Again, not in a salvific way, but in a way that shows the world that we represent a sacrificial king who laid his life down on a cross. Like, how will we show that king to the world if everything always goes well for us? 
This is God's design in the cross, and this is God's design in the church. You look in Acts, and you see the church's suffering is inevitable. From the very beginning, the apostles are being arrested. They're being put in prison. They're rejoicing. They've been counted worthy to suffer for the name. And you get to chapter 7, and Stephen is stoned. And Luke is very intentional to show us there in chapter 7, verse 54 through 60, the parallels between Stephen's stoning and Christ's death on the cross. Like, it's crystal clear. The church's suffering is inevitable, but don't miss it. In that, the church's mission is unstoppable. So see how God is bringing about the spread of the gospel, not in spite of suffering, but actually through suffering. As Stephen is stoned, the church in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, scatters. Up until that point, the gospel had been stuck in Jerusalem. Now the gospel is scattering into Judea and Samaria. And chapter 8, verse 4 in Acts says, the people who are scattered are preaching the gospel everywhere they go. So the gospel is now spreading, not in spite of persecution, but actually because of persecution. Not in spite of suffering, but because of suffering. Like, I love this. Satan's strategies to stop the church ultimately serve to spread the church. Like, think about it. God, in God's promise, so Satan strikes down one of God's choicest servants, Stephen. Satan's thinking, yes. Victory. Next verse, everyone is scattered and preaching the gospel to the nations. <laughs> Take that. Even better, Luke tells us that Saul is approving of Stephen's execution. So Saul leads out in the killing of Stephen, which leads to the scattering of believers, which then Acts chapter 11, verse 19, leads to the founding of the church at Antioch, which then Acts chapter 13 becomes the church that sends out Saul slash Paul on missionary journeys. <laughs> you can't write any script better than this. Saul inadvertently starts the church that one day sends him out as a missionary. Mark it down. Satan's strategies to stop the church will ultimately serve to spread the church in God's sovereign design. There's there's so much confidence we can have in the middle of suffering, in obedience to the Great Commission, because we know that God is in control. When you look at Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 30, and you see the church gathered together in prayer, right after they're starting to face imprisonment, they're released, they pray. Look at the first words of their prayer. Sovereign Lord, despotes is the word. Sovereign, despot, Lord, ruler over all. I think about one Romanian pastor who was being interrogated, abused, and beaten, and he said what got him through it all was a high view of the sovereignty of God. The realization that the soldiers who were questioning him and beating him could do absolutely nothing to him outside of the umbrella of God's sovereignty. He recounted one time when he was being interrogated by six men, and he said to his interrogators, what is taking place here is an encounter. It's not an encounter between you and me. This is an encounter between my God and me. The interrogators looked puzzled, and he said, my God is teaching me Through you, a lesson, I don't know what it is, 
Maybe he wants to teach me several lessons. I only know, sirs, that you will only do to me what God allows you to do, and you will not go one inch further because you are only an instrument. You are ultimately an instrument of my God. He goes on. He talks about during one early interrogation, he told an officer who was threatening to kill him, Sir, let me explain how I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know that I died for my preaching. And everyone who has a copy of that sermon will pick it up and say, I'd better listen again to what this man preached because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak 10 times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. He said after he told the interrogator this, he was sent home. And another officer who was interrogating a pastor friend of his said, we know that that pastor would love to be a martyr, but we are not that foolish to fulfill his wish. He said, I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement. I remembered how for many years I'd been afraid of dying. I'd kept a low profile because I wanted badly to live. I had wasted my life in inactivity. But now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided I was ready to die for the gospel, they were telling me they would not kill me. I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. Now that I was willing to lose it, I found it. Like, what if what Jesus said is actually true? What if surrender to him Losing our life, picking up our cross, dying to ourselves is actually the way to life. And not just for us, but for others. I think about Revelation chapter 6, where we see God is sovereignly ordained more men and women to be martyrs for the gospel. How the number is still growing under the sovereignty of God. Obviously not in a way that anyone would seek suffering or seek martyrdom. But in a way that should compel us all to seek Christ and proclaim Christ. Knowing that in the sovereign design of God it will not be easy It will not be comfortable. It will be costly. It may cost our lives. Like this is what we see all throughout Acts. And this is what Peter warned the Christians who would come after him. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Which is why we read. So now we step beyond pages of God's authoritative word for a moment and we just listen to those who've gone before us. Tradition tells us Matthew suffered martyrdom by being slain with a sword at a distant city of Ethiopia. Mark expired at Alexandria after being cruelly dragged through the streets of that city. 
Luke was hanged upon an olive tree in the classic land of Greece. John was put in a cauldron of boiling oil but escaped death in a miraculous manner and was afterward banished to Patmos. Peter was crucified at, his home, at Rome with his head downward. James the Greater was beheaded at Jerusalem. James the Less was thrown from a lofty pinnacle of the temple and then beaten to death with a fuller's club. Bartholomew was flayed alive. Andrew was bound to a cross whence he preached to the pers his persecutors until he died. Thomas was run through the body with a lance in the East Indies. Jude was shot to death with arrows. Matthias was first stoned and then beheaded. Barnabas of the Gentiles was stoned to death at Salonica. Paul, after various tortures and persecutions, was at length beheaded at Rome by the Emperor Nero. Such that Justin Martyr would write, No one makes us afraid or leads us into captivity as we have set our faith on Jesus. For though we are beheaded and crucified and exposed to beasts and chains and fire and all other forms of torture, it is plain that we do not forsake the confession of our faith. But the more things of this kind which happen to us, the more are there others who become believers through the name of Jesus. That's when Tertullian said, we Christians multiply whenever we are mown down. The blood of Christians is seed. Jerome said the church of Christ has been founded by shedding its own blood, not that of others, by enduring outrage, not by inflicting it. Persecutions have made it grow. Martyrdoms have crowned it. Fast forward all the way to Spurgeon, who said, Never did the church so much prosper and so truly thrive as she was baptized in the blood. The ship of the church never sails so gloriously along as when the bloody spray of her martyrs falls on her deck. We must suffer and we must die if we are ever to conquer this world for Christ. It is so sobering to read, to hear, to contemplate these realities for each one of our lives and our leadership in the church. Like, are we willing to send many martyrs? Are we working to raise up men and women who will be martyrs? Are we willing to lead the way as people laying down our lives for the spread of the gospel to people not yet reached with the gospel? I trust we realize they are unreached for a reason. They're hard to reach. They are difficult to reach. They are, in some cases, dangerous to reach. The accomplishment of the Great Commission will include great suffering. But eternity will prove it was worth the price. Eternity will prove it was worth the prize. Huh. We know the end of this story. I want to read it to us in a fresh way at the close of this conference. 
After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, Revelation 7, 9, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? From where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. He said to me, They are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. Serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. <laughs> to live is Christ, to die is gain. By the power of the gospel, by the power of Jesus Christ, the very worst thing that could happen to you and me has become the best thing that could happen to you and me. Death is gain. So, so do we believe that? Do we believe that our lives are his to spend however he wants? So, so we're willing to lay them down. In view of those who've gone before us, great cloud of witnesses all over Scripture, all over church history, whether it's Adoniram and Ann Judson, John and Betty Stam, just reread their biography, their mid-twenties, John and Betty with a three-year-old daughter serving in China in the 1930s. One day, Betty was bathing their little girl when the Red Army surrounded their house, came in, took them captive, made them walk to another city where they bound John to a post for the night. The next day, they forced both of them to walk in their underwear through the streets of the town where crowds gathered to watch their execution. They beheaded John first while Betty watched. And then when she fell over his dead body, they beheaded her. When the China Inland Mission notified Betty's parents back in New Jersey about what had happened, the mission received a telegram response promptly. Betty Stam's parents wrote, Deeply appreciate your consolation. Sacrifice seems great, but not too great for him who gave himself for us. Experiencing God's grace, believe wholeheartedly, Romans 8.28. Upon hearing Betty's sister, Helen, wrote this to her parents. Dearest daddy and mother, you don't need to hear me say how much we love you and are thinking of you and praying for you in these days. I have such radiant pictures of Betty and John standing with their palms of victory before the throne, singing a song of pure joy because they had given everything they had to their master. 
that I cannot break loose and cry about it as people expect. Crying seems to be too petty for a thing that was so manifestly in God's hands alone. But my heart is very, very sore for you. Where are the John and Betty Stams and the siblings and the parents who believe like this and who live like this because they know that we stand on the porch of eternity and Billions of people's lives are in the balance. And we're not just playing religious games on Sundays here. And the purpose of our lives is not to coast this thing out in a nice, comfortable Christian spin on the American dream. God, open our eyes to what's at stake. For all who do not trust in Jesus, whether they have heard of him or not. For all who do not trust in Jesus, and they can't trust him if they don't hear about him. Romans 10. For all who do not trust in Jesus, hell will be a place of everlasting suffering. Everlasting, never-ending suffering. When Revelation 14 tells us of the horrors of hell lasting forever and ever, that and ever adds nothing to the meaning. Forever is already sufficient. But the Holy Spirit gives us and ever just to let it sink into our hearts and ever and ever and ever. Said of Jonathan Edwards preaching that people were urged to consider the torment of burning like a livid coal, not for an instant or for a day, but for millions and millions of ages, at the end of which people will realize that they are no closer to the end than when they first begun, and they will never, ever be delivered from that place. And there's two or three billion people who are on a road that leads to that destination who've never even had someone tell them God loves them and has sent Jesus to die for them so that they can have life with him. And that's what he's calling us to, life with him. Lose your life, you find life now and life forever. What Revelation describes here is a place of never-ending joy. Will this be worth it? A place where we will be with God. He will be with us. Death will be replaced by life. No more sin. No more sorrow. No more sickness. No more separation. Night, Revelation 21, will be replaced by light. Corruption replaced by purity. Curse replaced by blessing. 
leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations in Revelation chapter 22. You get to verse 4, 5, the most beautiful words in the Bible. We will see his face. It's what we're living for. It's why the Bible ends like it does over and over and over again. I am coming soon. Behold. Behold, I am coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Come quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This is the cry of the church in a world of sin and suffering. Come, Lord Jesus, and spend our lives in a Second Peter 3 kind of way, hastening your coming. So, A quote from John Piper. He said, when you know the truth about what happens to you after you die, and you believe it, and you are satisfied with all that God will be for you in the ages to come, that truth makes you free indeed. Free from the short, shallow, suicidal pleasures of sin, and free for the sacrifices of mission and ministry that cause people to give glory to our Father in heaven. Do you know the truth about what happens to you after you die? Do you believe it? Are you satisfied with all that God will be for you in the ages to come? ages to come then be free be free today from the short shallow suicidal pleasures of sin and be free today for the sacrifices of mission and ministry that cause people to give glory to our father who is in heaven this is the testimony based on the price paid by those who went before us who show us that the accomplishment of the Great Commission will involve great suffering. But their voices cry, eternity will prove it was worth the price. Will you bow your heads with me? I just want to lead us in prayer based on this truth. God, we pray that you'd help us to believe it, to believe you, to believe your word, to believe your promises too, believe your presence with us, believe that people need to hear this gospel in order to have life. God, we pray that it helps to love people without this gospel. Yes, right around us. Yes, right around us and far from us. Especially, God, we pray for people who've never heard the good news of your love in Christ. God, please use this conference, use our lives, use the churches we lead to make the gospel known among them, we pray. 
And as we pray this, we know, based on all we've just seen in your word, we know that this will involve suffering. I don't presume to know all that that means in my life or in anyone else's life, but we know that it will involve suffering. But we say together that we believe it will be worth it for us and for all who hear and believe and come to know you, Jesus, and life in you. So spend us, we pray. Spend our lives, our families, our churches, however you want for the accomplishment of your great commission. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.